Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Please put your hands together for my brother, uh, Benjamin Camp, as he comes. Come on, man. Well, there's, uh, there's something about the warfare required to push back the dominion of darkness uh, that needs you to be able to look to the left or to the right and see other brothers and sisters fighting along your side to, to give you that courage, the strength of heart to keep going. And Pastor John is one of those brothers for me. The outpouring is such a gift uh, to the city of Orlando to know that you all are here as a worshiping and witnessing community uh, to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So I'm so grateful for all of you. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Our Father God, would you speak through your word by your spirit this morning? Jesus, you said that when you are lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. Would you do that in our midst? Draw us. Some of us are wayward. Some of us are wandering. Some of us are just weary right now. All of us want to, need to, have to come to you. And so Jesus, would you do that? Would you draw us to you this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'll get to our scripture reading in a moment, uh, which will be just one verse from Colossians 4, verse 2. But before I, want to, I get there, I want to say, um, what do you think nerds do on vacation? I'll just tell you, uh, they read history books. And so uh, a few months ago, I was on vacation, and I was reading a history book uh, by a guy named Will Durant. And Will Durant is, is a foremost historian. He and his wife uh, wrote an 11-volume epic called The Story of Civilization. And I, don't, don't be confused, I wasn't reading that. I was reading his 130-page uh, summary of that 11-volume epic called The Lessons of History. And so this guy, basically at the end of his life, he's reflecting on all that he's learned from studying the history of human civilization, and he distills it into 130 pages, and, and I'd commend it to you. Uh, he's not a believer, he's not a disciple of Jesus, so that shows up in, in various points, but, but it was helpful. And, and towards the end of that book, he, he asks a question, and he says this, the greatest question of our time is, pause, whenever I hear somebody make a superlative statement like that, I slow down and I lean in because I want to hear what you have to say, especially if they have the credentials of Will Durant. And so the greatest question of our time is, how would you finish that? How would you finish that? The greatest question of our time is, and this is what he says, not communism versus individualism, not Europe versus America, not even the East versus the West. Here's what he says. The greatest question of our time is, whether men can bear to live without God. You see, as a historian, he was reflecting on how we, you and me, we live in, in a time of human history that is an anomaly. It's never existed before. The first time in hu human history where the dominant philosophy of our day and age is what's called secular materialism. Essentially what secular materialism says is that there is no transcendent dimension to reality. There's no such thing that called spiritual. There's no, there's no spiritual realm at all. 
which means that there is no God, there is no soul. It also means that love is basically just the firing of some chemistry going on in your brain. It means that everything that gives meaning and value and significance to life has been stripped away, but that's the age that we live in, a secular age, as people have called it. And so Will Durant is reflecting on this because he realizes this is the first time in human history that transcendent faith has been replaced by imminent doubt, skepticism, cynicism. And he's wondering what this is going to be like, what the effects on human civilization this is going to have. You see, most people in our day and age actually think of God as if he's on an island. And, and as science and technology progresses, it's as if the water is just rising and rising and rising and, and kind of squeezing out any space for God left until eventually we will basically just completely overcome that island and there will be no need for God left in the world. One pastor describes it like this. Secular culture is performing a reverse exorcism. A reverse exorcism saying to Jesus, come out in our name. So much of the gifts of, of the culture that we live in comes from its rootedness in Christian values and vision of what, the, what reality looks like. And, and, and as the secular culture is exorcising our life, our civilization from Jesus' name, uh, it has implications for us. And so really what this means is as a result in the practical stuff of everyday life, many of us live as functional atheists. Functional atheists. You, you wouldn't say that you are. You come here, you worship, you believe in God, but then you're nine to five, the rest of your life you live as if God is at best irrelevant. And so this is the day and age we live in. In the mid-20th century, uh, the evangelist and apologist Francis Schaeffer turned to his wife and he said, Edith, I think that if we woke up tomorrow and I wonder what would happen if everything in the Bible about the reality and the work of the Holy Spirit and everything in the Bible about prayer, if it just disappeared, we all woke up tomorrow and it was just not in the Bible anymore, I wonder if it would have much of a change in many churches and Christian organizations. They concluded probably not. And he was, he was prophetic because in 2005, Barna, the research group, studied pastors in America. And he, they studied what are the priorities of the pastoral life in America. Now, pastors got a lot of things to do. And so they, they basically looked at the priorities of them, and, and prayer was number 12 out of 12. It was the dead last. After good things like evangelism and outreach or preaching and teaching or soul care, discipleship, like good things, prayer was 12 out of 12. What Francis Schaeffer predicted was true and now we have data to back it up. If we look around and we wonder why we are a powerless church, the answer is really clear. It's that we're a prayerless church. We do not have the ability to impact our culture and our neighbors the way that God has intended for us to do because we do not pray. Yeah. And so what do we do? What's the answer? Well, I think we need to recover uh, something that uh, I'm going to coin. I'm not coining the phrase. I'm going to give you a phrase that, that we're going to talk about the rest of today. And the phrase is this, insistent realism. Can somebody say insistent realism? Insistent realism. This comes from a hero of mine, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was killed by Hitler for training up pastors to resist the Nazi regime in Germany. He was killed by Hitler for that. And, and in his, one of his last letters ever written while he was in prison, waiting his execution, 
He wrote a letter to his father and he said, this phrase, insistent realism, could summarize all of my life and all of the work that I've given myself to. So you might want to know, what, what is insistent realism? Well, these are my words, not his. It's basically that talk is cheap. If your Christianity does not show up in the everyday minutia of life, it is not Christianity. To use the words here, for Bonhoeffer, Christianity could never be merely intellectual theory. But it must always be discipleship to Christ in every situation of concrete, everyday life, personal and public. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over all, or he's not Lord at all. That's what insistent realism says. Insistent realism is the lived demonstration of the reality of God on earth. It's that our lives would look so much as if God truly is a lived reality, that we'd be a demonstration to people around us. Let me give you a few examples. The first is uh, Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary who had an undying love for the Chinese people. So much so that he made 10 voyages from England to China. This is back before traveling by ship was as easy as it is today. 10 voyages from, from London to China. They calculated it. He probably spent about five to six years on a boat. Five to six years of his life he gave on a boat. What would drive a man to do this? Well, he gave us, in his own words, he said his life and his life work were founded upon three facts. Here they are. One, there is a living God. Two, he has spoken in the Bible. Three, he means what he says and will do what he's promised. That's insistent realism. Or how about George Mueller of Bristol who fed 10,000 orphans through prayer alone? Or just think about the early church in Acts uh, who, quote, turned the world upside down, as their persecutors said. The early church, in, it was their insistent realism that turned the world upside down. The apostles, when they were arrested, they said, we cannot but help speak of all that we have seen and heard. God is on the move in our midst, and we can't help ourselves but tell other people about it. That is insistent realism. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul assumed that when outsiders come in here, where the people of God are gathered in the presence of God, when outsiders come in, they would be able to say, whoa, surely God is among you. That's insistent realism. And so... The question I have for you, Outpouring Orlando, is are we, are you a living, breathing demonstration of the reality of the living God on earth? So let's settle this question right now. We live in a cultural moment that is insistent unrealism. So let's settle the question once and for all. Is God living and active in the real stuff of life or not? That's what I want to talk about today. Because if so, we got to pray. If so, let's pray. And if we're going to pray, we need to learn the story of prayer from Colossians 4.2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Colossians 4.2. One verse, short and sweet. And I'm going to say that this verse is the story of prayer. The story of prayer. Aristotle, uh, the famous philosopher, said a whole story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're like, I thought that dude was supposed to be profound. He was. 
A whole story just has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's what we see in Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. That's the beginning of the story. Being watchful in it. That's the middle of, of the story of prayer. With thanksgiving. That's the end. We're just going to be in that one verse. My three points are those three sections, the three phrases from the verse itself. So let's look at what it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer. This, this phrase, to continue steadfastly or to devote yourselves to prayer, depending on your translation, it shows up ten times in the New Testament. Six of which in the book of Acts. Because it's used to describe this devotion, this continuing steadfastly. It's used to describe the life of the early church. Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Brothers and sisters, come August 16th for the night of prayer. Be like the early church. Be with one accord, devoting yourselves to prayer. This is where we find the early church when we open up to the book of Acts. Page one. What are they doing? They're devoting themselves to prayer with one accord. There's a unity in their commitment. They're continuing steadfastly in prayer together. You probably just look at the, the other page in your Bible. Look at Acts 2.42 and it says this. And they devoted themselves. Same word to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Go a little bit for, further, Acts 6, when they're figuring out how to, how to serve tables and, and who does what and kind of divvying out responsibilities. And it says this, we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. If you wanted apostolic priorities for pastoral ministry, Acts 6.4 has them for you. It was the first thing before preaching the word was to devote themselves to prayer. Not 12 out of 12, number one. And so we look at the early church, we kind of get a glimpse of what it looks like, and they continued steadfastly in prayer. That's what was true about them. So, so let me ask you, if an outside observer followed you around this past week, and they just paid attention to your personal life, would they say, man, that man, that woman is devoted to prayer? How about your home life? your family, together with the people you live with, would they say, wow, they're just devoted to prayer? What about the church life? If they looked at 2022, the outpouring of Orlando, New City Orlando, and they said, would they say, wow, those people just, they devote themselves to prayer. They continue steadfastly in it. This word could also be, uh, to, to be devoted is, is to act stubbornly about something. Some of you are like, oh, I know something about being devoted now. To act stubbornly about something, this refusal to be denied. Like, if you could be stubbornly committed to something in your life, what would it be? Some of y'all are like, it's, it's my diet and exercise plan. Some of you are like, it's, my, it's financial investment, it's saving, it's building a, my career. It's the early church, it was prayer. They were stubbornly, tenaciously, unflinchingly committed to their life of prayer together. And so, we get there, we begin to pray, and then we give up. We, we get down on our knees, or we uh, open our hands, and we, we try to turn it on, but then we quickly shut down. We get distracted easily, and so then we cease and desist. So what do we do? And let me just be clear, me too. I'm not above you. I, I have the exact same issues when I try to step into the presence of God to seek God's face in prayer. And I think that the Apostle Paul knew that this would be a problem because you don't have to continue somebody to, uh, uh, command somebody to continue steadfastly in something if it comes easily and naturally to them. 
Like, you don't hear him saying, devote yourselves to sugar and Netflix. Right? Because there's, there's an arduousness. There's a strenuousness to devoting ourselves to prayer that Paul knows is there. And so, so let me just help us a little bit here. How do we devote ourselves to continue steadfastly in prayer? Well, I want to ask two questions. Because I think although these questions sound stern, I think they cut like a knife to the heart of our prayerlessness. When you step into prayer, ask yourself these two questions. Who do you think you're talking to? And who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to and who do you think you are? If you can ask and answer these two questions every time you go to prayer, it will help you to continue steadfastly to devote yourselves to prayer. Let's look at that first one together. Who do you think you're talking to? Abraham Joshua Heschel. If you Google this, you can see him marching in the front row, arm in arm, on Selma with MLK. He was a rabbi, incredible insight into the spiritual life. He says this, the issue of prayer is not prayer. The issue of prayer is God. If you want to pray more, you have to know who do you think you're talking to? Like if faith is a flame, then secularism is like a vacuum that's sucking all of the oxygen out of our cultural moment. And that, f that flame is flickering and it's soon to be extinguished in many people's lives. And, and my father was a firefighter. I grew up in a firefighter's home. And so I knew about this thing called the fire triangle, which basically means for fire to ignite, it needs three things. It needs fuel to burn. It needs heat. And it needs oxygen. A fire needs all three of those things in order to, in order to burn. And so what would happen sometimes in a fire, this was a real dangerous thing that firefighters had to pay attention to, is if a fire was really raging for a while, at some point it might burn up all of the oxygen in the room. And the fire begins to dwindle down. And so the firefighters think, oh, we can step into this room. It's safe. Well, as they go into the room, there's this introduction of new air, and the fire will flame out. It's called a backdraft, and it kills firefighters because it can be so dangerous. And so listen to the language uh, used to describe this. When air comes in, quote, rapid ignition can occur with devastating force. That is a great description of a praying church. Rapid ignition can occur with devastating force outpouring Orlando in you, through you, in East Orlando, taking back the domain of darkness for the kingdom of God's beloved son. When you become a praying church, what happens is because we are in prayer, we are re-oxygenizing our souls. We're breathing deeply of the heavenly atmosphere. It, it, it can introduce air back in so that it reignites the flame of our faith. Prayer is like soul breathing. Prayer is like bellows that fan the flame of faith so that it's a ferocious fire. And so when we pray, we are inhaling deeply the atmosphere of God's presence. But some of you, your understanding of God, your knowledge of God, which I'm saying is the oxygen we breathe in prayer, it's toxic. It's full of noxious fumes. And so when you try to breathe deeply of prayer, you get sick of God. You don't want to be in God's presence. And this is not because God is toxic. It's because your view of God is toxic. It's why I'm asking the question, who do you think you're talking to when you step into the presence of God in prayer? Because it really matters. 
One guy I've learned a lot who, who I would say has a life, pattern of life that shows that he is devoted to prayer. He's a guy named Corey Russell, and he says it like this. We don't pray because nobody likes to talk to someone who is ugly, boring, and doesn't like you. He's just going to say it how it is. Another way to say that is, we have a hard time praying because we don't see God as beautiful, captivating, and truly, madly, deeply for you. On your behalf. Disposed to do good for you. We don't see God that way. And so we don't want to be in His presence. Understandably so. One rabbi put it like this, when you pray, know before whom you stand. Know before whom you stand because the people who know God best pray most. Maybe one of the reasons that you don't pray that much is because the person that you think you're talking to is not the kind of person you want to be talking to. So who do you think you're talking to when you go to prayer? The people who know God best pray most because they know that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of God's generous willingness. Let me tell you a story. Alexander the Great, ruler of the known world in his time. Nobody had deeper pockets than Alexander the Great. He had a general, and this general's daughter was getting married. And so Alexander said to his general, hey, I know the wedding's going to be expensive, so I want to contribute. Just ask for whatever you want. The general asked for a stupid, ridiculous sum of money from Alexander the Great for his daughter's wedding. And so when the treasurer saw it, he brought it to Alexander and he said something to the effect of, hey, I know you're going to cut this dude's head off for how ridiculous this sum of money he's asking for, uh, but I just wanted, to, I wanted you to know because the audacity of his asking is ridiculous. And here's what he said. Who does he think you are? Who does this general think you are that he thinks he can ask Alexander the Great for such a ridiculous sum of money for his daughter's wedding? And look at how Alexander responds. Give it to him. Give it all to him. Why? He says, by such an outlandish request, he shows that he believes that I am both rich and generous. He was flattered by it. Brothers and sisters, is not the living God more rich and generous than Alexander the Great? Do we ask of him? One of the foundations of Christian religion is that God has to disclose himself to us because left to our own devices, we would make up a God like Allah. We would make up a God like Zeus. Basically, like our angry dad scaled 10,000 X. And so you cannot let your own conception of who God is rule your understanding of who God is because you will have it warped by your own suffering and sin and sorrow. And you won't know who God really is. And so God must disclose himself to us if we're truly going to know who it is before whom we stand. So here's my encouragement. Psalm 145, write that down. Meditate on Psalm 145 this afternoon and consider the picture, the portrait of who God is there. Read through the Gospels. Jesus came to give us a trustworthy picture of God. Look at how many people come to Jesus begging for things, needy, asking. And look at how Jesus responds to them. He gives far more abundantly than any of them could ever ask or imagine. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. 
the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look at the Gospels. Look at how he treats people who prayed to him. And by that I mean because he was embodied in front of them, they just came to him and said, I'm blind, I want to see. My kid is dead, can you raise her? I can't help but, but get this crazy demonic voice out of my head. Can you deliver me? They ask and they receive far more abundantly than all that they could ask or imagine. So the first question I said was, who do you think you're talking to? The second question is, who do you think you are? When you are in prayer, if you're anything like me, you think you are not worthy to be there. You think you are undeserving. You think your sincerity is lacking. Let me just be real clear with you. You are not worthy. You are undeserving. Your sincerity could never be enough. But thank God He beckons us to come anyways. The reason why is because although our motives are mixed, although our hearts are cold, although our devotion is fickle, our big brother Jesus has created a space before the presence of His Father where we can stand and pray with boldness before His throne. It's not your worthiness, it's His worthiness. It's not your deserving, it's His deserving. It's not the, the warmth or the coldness of your own heart. It is Jesus who wept with loud cries and agonized in prayer while He was here on earth that is the basis before which you stand on high before the Father. This is good news for those of us who don't find ourselves having it all together when we step into the presence of God. Who do you think you are? That was my question. Who, who is it do you think that you are? This is why when we pray, many of us pray at the end, we say, in the name of Jesus, amen. That's not a throwaway phrase. What it means is, I'll just give you my own example. When I come to prayer and I find myself, whatever's going on inside me, is just, it just is a hindrance, not a help. I, I, close my, I just think about what it's like to belong to Jesus, to be in him and him in me, that I come not on own stead but in his stead that I come because I have boldness to ask before the throne of grace because of all that Jesus is for me when I pray in Jesus's name it's it, it is that I'm praying for his sake but it's not merely that when I pray in Jesus's name it says I'm saying that through his cross and resurrection Jesus has made me his own I belong to him and so I come as him before God the Father. That's what it means to come and bring your requests in Jesus' name. My questions were, who do you think you're talking to and who do you think you are? C.S. Lewis summarized it like this. He said, the prayer that precedes all prayers is this. May it be the real I who speaks and may it be the real you to whom I speak. You hear both questions there? The real I, who do you think you are? The real thou, the real you, God. Who do you think you're talking to? This is just the beginning of the story of prayer, which is that we devote ourselves to prayer. The middle is that we are watchful in it. We are watchful in it. The middle of the story of prayer is to be watchful, alert, awake in it. What does that mean? Well, the opposite would be to be oblivious, asleep, negligent in our prayer. It is to be, to be watchful is to be alive and aware in the full. Kevin Van Hooser says, to make disciples, we have to wake disciples. What he means by that is to be a disciple of Jesus, to get in behind him and follow him wherever he goes. It, it means that we are continually waking up to the insistent reality that God is living and active in our everyday experience. 
that God is on the move in our lives, in our culture, in our civil, sociopolitically. Like, one of the things I do when I'm doing yard work on Saturdays, I put in some, my AirPods, and I, I use this app called Dwell, and I just listen to large swaths of Scripture. And, and so, not too long ago, I was listening through the whole book of Isaiah as I'm pulling weeds and stuff. And one of the things that struck me was that here is God Almighty throwing shade on Assyrian conquerors because those conquerors are talking trash about how God can't protect the Israelites from the onslaught that's about to come. I'm just thinking, the Bible trains us to see God at work in everything. In geopolitical matters and in personal matters. The macro and the micro, God is there. He is involved. And the Bible trains us that way because we have to be those who are aware of the insistent reality of God at work in our midst. That's the only thing that's going to allow us to pray. And that's what Paul means when he says to be watchful in it. Pay attention. Look out. Open your eyes. See God at work in our midst. You see, following Jesus requires expectancy. Expectancy. We devote ourselves to prayer and then we watch and we wait because we know that the ordinary is about to burst. We know that reality is going to open up to reveal God at work in us and through us. Not too long ago, I had the privilege of going birding with a mentor of mine. Now you might be saying, Ben, what is the difference between birding and bird watching? It's a difference between varsity and JV. Let me just be real with you. Okay, so if you're a birder, you are way more diligent and dedicated in your pursuit of birds. You go to where they are. You don't just wait to come uh, for them to come to you. Um, bird watchers are a little bit more casual. Some might say lazy, okay? If you, if you call a birder a bird watcher, you might have a fight on your hands. I'm just, I'm just trying to help you avoid that, that landmine because it's there. And so I go birding with this very experienced birder. And, and, and listen... He knew where to go. He knew the kind of place to go where something's about to break in that's going to be extraordinary. He knew exactly where to wait, to be still, to be poised, to be alert. Not tense or fussy, but just to watch and wait, expecting something extraordinary to burst onto the scene. That's what it means to be watchful in prayer. We can learn a lot from birders on how to be watchful in prayer. And so some of you are in a season of life where you've been watching and waiting for far too long. And you feel like you're watching and waiting in the cold and in the rain, and you're wondering if God's ever going to hear your cries for help. If he's ever going to show up like he's promised to. And listen, brothers and sisters, what I want to invite you to is to be watchful in it. Pay attention. Notice that God is on the move, even if we don't observe him on the move. That day at Mead Gardens, that's where we went birding. If you've ever been there, it's not that big. We saw 32 different kinds of birds, and here was the issue. I could have walked for hours. We were only there for two hours. I could have been there all day long. I would have not counted 32 different species of birds. Why? Because I did not have eyes to see. This is why community is essential for the Christian life. We have to have people who can look at you and they can say, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus into paying attention, being watchful to how God is at work in your life. We have to be able to do this for one another. Because oftentimes, I mean, we can't even tell if our own breath smells bad. How are we going to tell how God's at work in us? We need each other in this way. Some of y'all laugh too much. You tell me if my breath is bad today. 
You, t- you tell me. And so listen, what this means is, is to take seriously Paul's injunction to be watchful in prayer. Brothers and sisters, let me just offer you a gentle rebuke from Sherlock Holmes. You see, but you do not observe. You walk through life seeing all that's going on around you, but you don't observe how God is at work in the details. If you look at the book of Exodus, we're about to preach through it at at New City, and and so I've been reading it. And, And in Exodus 3, the famous story of Moses with the burning bush if you pay attention to the watchfulness of Moses in that, in that verse, it's amazing. Exodus 3, verse 2 reads like this. It says, Moses looked and behold. Like, homie's just minding his own business, tending to sheep. He walks up and he sees out of the corner of his eye something crazy going down. And so it says, Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'm assuming talking to the sheep or himself. I, nobody else is there. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. This is watchfulness. Why this bush is not burned. Now look at how the Lord responds. It says this in verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. God called to Moses out of the bush in response to Moses slowing down enough to be watchful and see. Listen to me. When you are watchful in prayer, every bush is a burning bush. When you slow down to see God at work in your world, the world is aflame with the presence of God. This is what Paul's trying to teach us, is how do we be watchful in our prayer lives? Let me give you three really practical ways to do this. Three real practical ways. Write, record, and recount. The first one is I want you to write down a prayer list. Write down the things that you're asking for, the things that require any kind of continuing steadfastly, any devotedness. Write them down. One challenge I would encourage you to do, I've I've challenged my own congregation to this, which is to have a list at any given time of three to five not yet disciples of Jesus that you pray for daily. That's the devoted piece. That you devote yourselves in praying, God, would you show up in their life? God, would you... Open up their hearts. God, would you give them eyes to see Jesus? God, would you draw them to yourself? You're just praying for those people, devoting. Three to five. Write them down. D.L. Moody, the evangelist in the 19th century, had a list like this where he had 100 friends who did not yet know Jesus written on this list. He prayed for all 100 every day. I'm asking you to do three to five. (laughs) Pressure's off. 100 people. By the time of D.L. Moody's death, 96 of the 100 people had come to know Jesus. Now, some of y'all in here are like, that's not enough, bro. I got a 4.0 in school. I know what an A is. 96 out of 100 is an A, but why not 100? Listen, the other four came to Christ at his funeral. His prayers posthumously brought his friends to know Jesus. He had devoted himself to prayer. This is the invitation. But as you are devoting yourself to prayer, and you're writing this prayer list down, the second thing I want you to do is to record answered prayers. Like, this is fresh. I, yesterday, uh, I, I don't want to get in trouble here. I'll just say this. My wife has a lot of hair, and it comes out in the shower. And more than the two of us, she tends to be the one that clogs our shower drain. I'm just going to straight shoot it straight with you. And so every now and again, I've got to get the drain unhinged and whatnot, get in there and start cleaning some things out, usually just lots of blonde hair, essentially. And so 
Yesterday I was doing this, and I was doing everything I knew to get this drain out. Could not get it. And I was watching YouTube videos over and over and over again because I'm not handy. Let's just be real. I got gifts. That's not one of them. And I'm trying to get this drain undone, and, and I cannot do it. I'm using pliers and screwdrivers and towel. I'm just everything. And it, it dawns on me, why don't you just ask? And so I just go, Father, would you help me right now? I cannot do this on my own. And you know how worked up I get about house projects. <laughs> Have mercy on your servant. That's essentially what I'm praying. And I literally just grab it, boom, pops right off. Now, you could say, hey, that's a coincidence. William Temple taught me, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. So, so which one do you want? You can live a life of insistent realism that believes that your father cares about the number of hairs on your head. He cares about helping you get a drain unhooked. Or you can live a life of unreality like our culture is constantly helping you to do. And you could just say, yeah, that would have happened. You know, I just, like the, like the can of mayonnaise or whatever. I just loosened it up so the other person could pop it off. Like, no, no, no. God showed up in answers to my prayer that, that, in that very mundane reality kind of way. This is insistent realism. And record those answers to prayer. That's what I said. Write them down, then record the answers to prayer. Become a chronicler of God's grace. Be like God's spy that you're just searching out the terrain for evidences of the Holy Ghost at work. And write down these answers to prayer because we need to hear them. And the third thing I want you to do, you write them down, you record the answers, recount these stories to one another. Tell of the way in which God has, what he has done for you. Uh, some traditions call this testimony. Some traditions call it bearing witness. We need more of this. And so recount these stories to one another. At New City, we call them renewal and mission stories. Renewal is what God's at work doing in you. Mission is what he's doing through you. Renewal mission stories. We call them RAMs for short, and we don't apologize for that, even though it's a, kind of a cheeky acronym. Okay, and so this is what I'm asking you to do. Write down your prayers. Record how God answers them. And then recount those stories to one another. This is how faith flourishes in a secular age. This is why we need a community. Most of the imperatives in the New Testament are not you singular. They are y'all, plural, including this one. Devote yourselves, y'all, to prayer. You all, be watchful in it. You all do it with thanksgiving. We need each other. We need this community of faith if faith is going to flourish and not flounder. And so the, the, the final point will be how do we do this with thanksgiving? Before we get there, I want to, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, this is a story that I heard Francis Chan tell in person, and it impacted me. He was on an airplane, and he was sitting next to a Muslim guy. And as they're flying, uh, Francis Chan starts talking to them about uh, his faith, and, and they start having this conversation about religion and whatnot. And, and, and Francis Chan is doing what I just told you to do. He just starts recounting these stories of how God's showing up in answer to his prayer. And he turns to this guy, and he says, does Allah do that for you? And this Muslim guy goes, Yeah. All the time. Francis kind of sinks back into his seat. He's like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, that's blowing my categories. A little bit later in the flight, the, the Muslim guy interrupts him and he goes, hey, I, I just got to name this with you. Um, when I heard the ways in which your God shows up for you, I felt as if I had to defend Allah's honor, but he does not show up for me like that. 
Francis Chan was bearing witness to the insistent reality that the true and living God is at work in our lives. And brothers and sisters, because you are his sons and daughters, you've got your father's ear. He inclines his ear. He listens to you. He is king and he is Abba. Both of those things at once. Those who know God best pray most because we, they know that he is good and gracious. That he is great and glorious. That he is a good father. And so the beginning of the story of prayer is we devote ourselves to it. The middle is we're watchful in it. And the end is we do all of this with thanksgiving. This is the finale of prayer. It culminates, prayer culminates in responding to the goodness of God with gratitude. Now we live in a cultural moment. A feature of our cultural moment is resentment. It's resentment. You see it all the time. It's all over the place. Resentment is a sort of bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. And let me be real with you for a moment. Let me just really be honest here. Every day, every one of us has a thousand reasons to be resentful or grateful. That's the choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Do you want to live in resentment or do you want to live in gratitude? It's all about perspective. The culture is going to constantly tell you, indulge your resentment. The Bible is going to constantly tell you, divulge your gratitude. Tell people how good God is. Respond, because all of life, we are those crazy people who believe that all of life is gift from the hand of a good God. And so our lives are typified by gratitude, thankfulness, thanksgiving, and joy. And so, if we are not actively thankful every day, we will become resentful over time. Paul's helping us do all of this with thanksgiving. There's a beautiful portrait of this in Luke 2. In Luke chapter 2, this 84-year-old woman named Anna. I hope your church has some Annas and some Simeons. I always, I always bless them in our congregation because they're the ones that are actually making, getting the work done. Because Anna was this 84-year-old woman who was only married for seven years when her husband died. Seven years when her husband died. And then she devoted the rest of her life to 84 years old to, quote, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Listen, Anna had reason for resentment. You imagine being all the anticipation about getting married, all the excitement about this person you're going to spend the rest of your life with, and then seven years in, they drop dead. And then you spend the rest of your life as a widow, single, alone. That's a lot of reason for resentment, but Anna is the person who goes in and fasts and prays night and day, and guess what? She had the opportunity to see baby Jesus when he was brought into the temple. And so I, I want to just imagine what it would have been like. Like you walk into the temple to, to worship Yahweh, and as you're in the temple, you, you're just like, oh, here comes Anna. I know she's going to have a big old smile on her, on her face. Tell me about all the ways in which God's shown up for her. See how she can pray for me. Give me a big old hug. Tell me, hey, keep on, hang in there. Be encouraged as you wait for the redemption of Jerusalem. You can do this. God's with us. That's the kind of Annas we need in our lives. And This is what I want you to hear me say. I believe that it was God responding to the prayers of Anna that brought Jesus Christ into the world. Not just her prayers. Millions of prayers. Crying out to God just like in the Exodus God heard the cries of his people and he showed up on their behalf. I believe Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago as a response, an answer to prayers like Anna's. 
But not only is Jesus an answer to prayer, he is the ground of prayer. If you're going to live a life of insistent realism, you need to see that if God broke into the world in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ, he can and will do it again. In moment-by-moment realities of everyday life for us. So not only is Jesus the answer to our prayers, but he's the ground of our prayers because as Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross and he's crying out and he dies, his prayers were answered and we call that resurrection. Some of you are in a season of crucifixion right now in your prayer life. Look to Jesus. Look to him as the ground, the hope, the basis of your prayers. If God answers Jesus' prayers on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does that for you, forsaken for us so we might be brought in. If, if God answers that prayer, or her, how about maybe the last words on his lips when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is a prayer with a watchful eye towards resurrection. Jesus cries out like that on the cross and the Father hears and he answers and he raises Jesus from the dead. There's nothing in your life that a good resurrection couldn't fix. Jesus prayed for resurrection and the Father answered and he gave it to him. So Paul said that if Christ is not resurrected, we are most of all to be pitied. But doesn't that imply that we live lives of insistent realism? As if God really is a God of resurrection who hears our prayers? So brothers and sisters, we are devoted to praying because God is devoted to us. He is devoted to us as long as we both shall live. And guess what? We're both living forever. Brothers and sisters, we are watchful in prayer because God is watchful over us. He has the numbers of hairs on your head counted. He pays attention to the details. And lastly, we are thankful in praying because we cannot give God anything. He doesn't need our prayer. We cannot give God anything. Everything is already his. Everything we have is a gift from his hand. He gave us his very self in giving us Jesus. And so all that we can do is to turn toward him and utter a simple thank you. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.